The following is part two of three for our New Believers class taught by Pastor Brad Beers in January of 2024. Because the class builds on itself, we encourage you to listen to part one if you haven't already. If you have any questions about the material, please feel free to email Pastor Brad at bbeers at sbctrucky.com. Let's get started with part two. All right, so week two. Uh, Like I said, for you, we are going to cover, unfortunately, a little bit more material than we did last week. Now, I still want you, if you have questions or want to stop, to uh, ask those questions because I'd rather this be interactive than just me talking the whole time. Uh, But I'm going to dive right in, not necessarily give an introduction or review what we covered last week. If you do have questions about last week, uh, hit me up afterwards and we'll, we'll talk about that. But this week, I want to talk about what is happening to you. We talked about what did happen to you last week. Now we're going to talk about what is happening to you if you've given your life to Christ. And basically, you could say that the content of this will be things that are generally true and important to know for life in Christ. So the first thing I wanted to cover there is the Holy Spirit. So a little paragraph to start off here. Yahweh, that's the name when uh, Moses asked God, hey, what should I tell Pharaoh is your name? When When he asked me, by what authority are you coming to me demanding that I release all of my valuable slaves? God introduces himself to Moses with the word I am, which is a transliteration in, Ju- in the Hebrew language, Yahweh. So that's the name that God used to identify himself. Yahweh, the one true God, exists in three persons. Three persons. The theological term for this is the Trinity, if you wanted to put next to that. Not absolutely crucial that you understand that idea. Uh, in, my, in my graduate program, I spent an entire semester trying to understand things about the Trinity, and I can tell you that if you can't figure it out in six months, you're certainly not going to figure it out in the, in the shorter amount of time that we've got together. But it, he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those are the three persons of the Trinity. Now, there's a lot to say about each of these three persons, but for now, we are just going to focus on the Holy Spirit primarily because people have a tendency to think uh, pretty easily about God the Father. And certainly, if you gave your life to Jesus, you are aware of Jesus, but we have a tendency to not talk about the Holy Spirit as much, depending upon what church tradition you come from. There are some church traditions that they only talk about the Holy Spirit and primarily focus most of their energies talking about the Holy Spirit. Our church tradition, uh, because Jesus is so central to the message that we regularly preach, sometimes we inadvertently don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough. And so I want you to get like a basic level of understanding about the Holy Spirit. And if you are interested in learning about the Holy Spirit more, Wayne Hoag will be starting his class specifically on the Holy Spirit, uh, starting on Thursday nights. The first, it's, is it this week? Is it Yeah. From six o'clock and it's every Thursday night in February. So whenever the first Thursday in February, if you're interested in more, but for now, here's some basics on the Holy Spirit. Number one, when you gave your life to Christ, he came to live 
within you. He, the Holy Spirit, came to live within you. We have a tendency sometimes, if you grew up in the church, you might have become familiar with the phrase that you asked Jesus into your heart. That is kind of true and kind of not true. It's kind of true in that as we talk about the Holy Spirit, you'll realize how tightly connected they are in terms of the message that is being given to you as a follower of Christ. But if you wanted to be particularly specific, it is actually the Holy Spirit that comes to live within your spirit. Uh, because of how much ground we're going to try to cover today, I'm not going to read many of these passages. I'll just try to give you a general summary of those passages and then go back and, and check me on that and learn more on your own time. Ephesians 1 verses 13 through 14 says that the Holy Spirit, he is a, this is the next blank here, he is a deposit. He's a deposit declaring to God that we belong to him, that when you gave your life to Christ, Paul says in Ephesians, the Holy Spirit was planted within your spirit as a deposit that we belong to Christ. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 16 says that the Holy Spirit speaks with our spirit to declare that we are God's children, that it is the Holy Spirit's job it, to, to live within our spirit and declare to the Godhead, hey, this one belongs to us. This one is ours. And then maybe this is the most famous passage that you have heard of before, but maybe you didn't know that it ends with the word spirit. That 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 tells us that our body is the temple and the completion of that. Have anybody heard that idea before? Just nod your head. Your body's a temple. The completion of that verse is that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's actually what's in there, that God has rearranged the temple system. That's a whole interesting study for a different time, but he's re rearranged the temple system, making you the temple and him coming to dwell within you, just like he dwelt in a temple for the Hebrew people. So when you gave your life to Christ, he came to live within your spirit. Number two, what's his job? Why is he there? He is in the business of restoring you. Restoring, you could probably also use a synonym of repairing you or fixing you or growing you. And we're going to talk more about that process in the next section. But Romans 8 verse 11 tells us that he gives life to your mortal bodies. Now, this is a really big concept that I'm not going to spend a ton of time unpacking. But... The body, your body, your physical body, the thing that you're looking at when everybody kind of is looking around the room and we're seeing everyone else's body, your body is not evil any, any more than any other part of you is. It's not like there's a portion of you that God likes better than another portion of you. Your body is a phenomenal tool that God gave you. The problem is that our body learns all kinds of habits that we have a tendency to then divert from following Christ and the Holy Spirit, despite the fact that he is spiritual, he is non-physical, living within your spirit, which is a non-physical portion of you, God actually is using the Holy Spirit to restore even your body. 
And when I say restore your body, I don't mean, you know, fix a broken leg or make your lungs work. I mean, rearranging this this, these bad habits that you have used that have pulled you away from Christ and instead reorienting them, forgiving them, and repairing you back in the direction of following Christ. That's what Paul means when he says he gives life to your mortal bodies. Paul also writes in the book of Galatians chapter 5, verse 5, that through the Spirit, we are waiting for righteousness. That through the Spirit, we are waiting for righteousness. Righteousness might sound like a really fancy, almost intimidating theological term. It's really not. It really just means that things are set the way that they're supposed to be. That's all that righteousness means. And that it is the Spirit's job to show us paths of righteousness. We're going to see another verse in number three that drives us home even more. How is it that he brings righteousness? How is it that he's working in our mortal bodies? This is point three. His job, the Holy Spirit's job, is to teach you the lessons of Jesus. His job is to teach you the lessons of Jesus. I was having a conversation with somebody in the entryway this morning. And, uh, and she was telling me about this passage, uh, John 14, 15, and 16. Jesus does a ton of talking about the Holy Spirit. He talks about the Holy Spirit a ton in John 14 and 16. And Jesus actually tells his followers, hey, guys, I'm leaving. And it's actually a beneficial thing that I'm leaving because if I'm leaving, then that means that the Holy Spirit will come to live within you. It'll no longer be about me, you know, being within your physical presence. I'm going to come to live within your spirit. And she was expressing to me like how she almost has a hard time believing that Jesus describes this as a good thing, that it's better for him to have left so that we can receive the Holy Spirit. But within that passage, Jesus says that essentially he's going to continue to be with us. That's something we talked about last week because of these two points here. John 14, 26, uh, this is Jesus talking in John 14, 26, and he says, he's the helper who teaches you all things, teaches you all things. John 16, 13 through 15 tells us that these all things are Jesus' words. The way that Jesus says it, you could just say that he's teaching Jesus' words in that section there. I'm sorry, I forgot to put a line there for you to fill out, but that he's teaching you Jesus' words. Jesus says about the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit will not be speaking in and of himself. He will be speaking the things that he's been taught. Hey, how's it going? He's... He, is, he will be communicating the things that he is told to say by Jesus. So Jesus is communicating to us through the Holy Spirit. Okay. So the Holy Spirit's within us. He's a deposit for us. He's restoring us. He's teaching us. So point four. One of the most important things then that once we realize what the Holy Spirit's role is, is we're told that we have some responsibility that we must learn the process of walking in him. That's, that's kind of the language that's used within the New Testament. I listed a passage from Galatians there that is specifically in Galatians 5, 16 through 25, all about Paul's description of walking in the spirit. 
and he contrasts it by what it looks like to walk in our own power, to walk in and of ourselves doing what it is that we would typically do versus what it looks like to walk in the spirit. And we must learn the process of that. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that looks like when we get to the next sections. But just for now, know that that is an important part about the Holy Spirit, that we must learn to walk in him. Last, point five for the basics on the Holy Spirit. He guides you in and empowers you for, I want to stop there for a second, because he's going to guide you to something and then give you the power to do something. What is it? He guides you in and empowers you for your mission in God's kingdom, for your mission in God's kingdom. Like it or not, when you gave your life to Christ, the whole reason why God came to grab you was because he wants to use you in a very specific way. He wants to use you in a way that I can't be used. It's your unique ability to be used. And that comes from your circumstances, your gifting, your history, your personality, even the way that you look. Those were all intentional things that were done by God to communicate certain truths to other people in the world as he works out his kingdom, which we talked uh, a little bit about last week. And so the Holy Spirit's job is to guide you towards that mission and empower you for that mission. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 4 through 11 talks about the specific gifts. I just made mention to this. And when I say gifts... Obviously, don't feel bad if like you haven't had like some wrapped box land on your porch because you gave your life to Christ. What that specifically means is that you were given a certain ability when you gave your life to Christ or combination of abilities is probably more more likely. Most of the time, it's not just like one gift, but certain combination of gifts. And it was a unique combination of gifts that are different. Your gifts are different than hers. And yours are different than hers, and yours are different than yours. That you can uniquely be used with your mixture of gifts, which endows you. You already had value because of God's love upon you. But now you have even more purpose because you have a specific mission that I can't accomplish. God wants to use you to do it. And he's going to do it through his Holy Spirit living within you. Yeah. Would I be correct in saying we are being used as a vessel? Would you be correct in saying we are being used as a vessel? You would be because that comes directly from Scripture. Yes, that we, uh, that, that word vessel or that uh, is another word for like jar or container. And what Paul is saying is that we contain the power of God that we could be used for his purposes. So that's directly, that's Paul's language. Uh, the last section there, um, those are just a couple of different passages in the New Testament that talk about the Holy Spirit guiding people towards specific steps. Sometimes, and let me just say it this way, as simply as I possibly can, because this is a very confusing thing for people. Some people feel like in life they're supposed to get told by God to do everything that they do. I'm not taking a step unless God tells me what that step's supposed to look like. And that on the surface can sound very holy, right? I'm not going to take a step unless God specifically guides me into what that step is. 
I'm just going to be very blunt and tell you that that is not what I see on the pages of Scripture. Instead, God is training you to be the type of person that he doesn't even need to tell you which direction that you're going because your closeness with him is so deep that you naturally end up choosing the direction that he would have wanted for you anyway. Now, there are specific times that God has shown in Scripture, and I think he still does even to this day, where he specifically does communicate to individuals, hey, I want you to do this. And it wasn't, it wasn't something that was immediately apparent prior to that moment of communication. And he still, I think, does that today. But I would say that in general... He's not waiting for us to be told to do everything specifically. Think about it this way real quickly, if you ever struggle with this concept. If you've ever seen or been involved in the process of raising children, when they're little, you have to tell them to do everything, right? Wipe your nose, put away your dish, put your pants on, don't run into the street, do eat your vegetables, etc., etc. If a parent is still telling their child to do that when their child is 35, there's something wrong, right? Initially, sorry for the techno music, the kids are getting down above us right now, but uh, initially, he does want to provide some guidance, and he will actually do some of those things yourself, just like I, have to wipe, I had to wipe my kid's nose when they were little and incapable of doing so. But now I have an expectation that they will be able to start doing that themselves and I don't need to be the person telling them. That same process is similar to how God grows us in our faith and uses the Holy Spirit in the process of guiding us. Okay? So that's all I wanted to say initially. Like I said, that's just a very, introduction, uh, very introductory uh, amount of information pertaining to the Holy Spirit. Any quick questions before I jump from that? Was that a hand? His gifts enable you to fulfill, uh, gifts enable you, did I not say that one? No. Thank you. All of you little gold star students. What did I want you to write in there? His gifts enable you to fulfill your purpose. So I did talk about it. I just didn't explicitly say, hey, for that line, uh, do that. Fulfill your purpose. Well, it's because they're being led by Brad Knoll. <laughs> and Brad Knoll is up there jumping up and down right now. <laughs> so I'm glad this is a strong building. <laughs> I got the gold star I don't smell any gas. Wouldn't I smell? I think it just... Do you want me to turn it off? Are you worried? I have one at home and it does that. Yeah. And there's something wrong with it when it does that. Okay. So turn it off. Turn it off. I fixed it. I don't know. Okay, thanks for helping us. Either we're going to explode or get squashed. One or the other. I mean, yeah. Okay. Any other questions about the Holy Spirit before we move on? Like I said, really introductory information. There's a ton more to know. Fortunately, it's a, we just have an interesting dovetail of there being a specific class to the Holy Spirit on Thursday nights, if that's something that you want to explore uh, much further. Okay, so then here's the next, next section that I want to address about the Christian life. What is happening to you? And I want to just ask this question, should I change? 
The reason why I'm asking this question is that generally speaking, in my experience, God has allowed me to be around people either that have freshly given their lives to Christ or haven't and then they end up doing. And a lot of them immediately feel like what they're supposed to do because they gave their life to Christ is go home and change everything about their life. And it's not an uncommon thing. Jesse loves talking about the story about his mom when she gave her life to Christ. She like went home into his room specifically and like tore down all of his posters and like took all of his his I don't know if they were records or CDs at that time. What they're probably eight tracks with Jesse and threw threw them away. Um, you know, there's a, a general feeling about should I change? Where does that feeling come from and is it true? That's what I want to try to explain or understand as we talk about this. Little introductory paragraph here with no blanks in it. Many people think that once they become a Christian, they're supposed to change. Now, there's a way in which this is true and helpful, but there's also a way in which this idea is discouraging and dangerous. So here's what you should know about changing as a Christian. This is the process that's known. The theological word for this is sanctification. To break down that word, not necessarily because I feel like it's important for you to understand all the big theological words, but sanctification, the first half of that word is uh, sanctify, which just is another way of referring to something being made special for a special purpose. So... The way that I always like remembering it, although the last time I used this analogy, people didn't seem to identify with it anymore. I think maybe culture is getting away from it. But my mom always had special plates that we did not eat our Pop-Tarts on. Like it was, they, they only came out at either like Thanksgiving or uh, if there was like a special party at our house, then those plates were used. Otherwise, they were hidden and we were not allowed to touch them. I in my household was told, never go into that hutch and grab those plates. Those are the special plates. Sanctification is very similar to that. It's the process of something going from being a normal everyday thing to now being specially used for a special purpose. Just like we were talking about how the Holy Spirit has been given to you to fulfill your special purpose. And he is progressively sanctifying you or making you more and more fit to fulfill that special purpose. So a couple of important points that I want you to understand about the process of sanctification or the process of change. Point one, change is a partnership process. Change is a partnership process. You take steps and God takes steps. Now this is an important thing to understand. It sounds very simple, but most Christians that I have ever talked to throughout the duration of my life in trying to follow Christ fall on one side of the fence or the other and have a hard time walking the balance between the two. Either they're the type of person that thinks that they have to do everything. Now that I follow Jesus, I've got to make everything happen and I've got to do everything happen. And if stuff isn't happening the way that is supposed to happen, it's because it's my fault and I got to be the one to fix the problem. That's not it. On the other side, there are sometimes people that are just like, look, because of God's grace, I don't have to do anything. So I just kind of like cruise through life and God grows me as he sees fit. The truth is between those two. 
that God grows you as he sees fit. And a lot of the times he uses your effort to accomplish that growth process. It's both. God grows you and you are involved in the process. You can't do it yourself. One of my mentors that I read is that if we, I won't even try to quote him because I'll get it wrong, but he has a really clever way of saying it, but it's essentially that we both take steps. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13, a very uh, famous verse that drives this point home. It tells us, work out your salvation. Take your steps. Do the things that are necessary. Get involved in the process. Take your steps. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you to bring about his purposes. I mean, it's just specifically spelled out for you there. In, in Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation because God works in you. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24 is another way, uh, this is like the Ephesians passage that I told you about, that Galatians passage about walking in the Spirit. When maybe you were here for our Ephesians series, I actually got the opportunity to preach this specific section of the text where Paul describes what the process is that we are to um, uh, involve ourselves in, where we are to take off something, let our minds be renewed, and then put on something. If you were there when I was able to give that message, I used the analogy of jackets, that we have the responsibility of taking off something old, but at that point, that's not it. That's not enough. Just like trying to avoid doing what it is that you used to do, that's not enough. We have to start the process of trying to take that off, but then let God renew our minds and then put on his new qualities as a result of that. We lay off our old self and God renews our minds. So it's a partnership process. Number two, I would say that point one is, is the most important point. So if you need to zone out for a moment, you can zone up for the next couple points. But point two is that Jesus intended for us to take his words seriously. So we need to be intentional. That's one of my favorite words to try to understand things. We need to be intentional. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus asks people that are around him, why is it that you're calling me Lord, but you don't actually do the stuff that I tell you to do? And when you look at the things that Jesus teaches us to do as his followers, there's some very specific things. There are ways of living life that are very contrary to the way that the world lives life. And Jesus says, look, if you're going to call me Lord, I actually intend for you to do the things that I'm teaching you to do. Don't call me Lord if you're not intending to actually do the things that I've called you to do. This is why in 2 Peter verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, Peter makes the argument in this chapter that in response to all the wonderful things that Jesus did, that we are to make every effort to grow in grace. That's a fun phrase, grow in grace, because it, I, it carries that idea of balance that we talked about, how it's a partnership process, that God takes steps and we take steps, right? If we grow in grace, the God takes steps part is the fact that we need his grace in order to do things. The simplest way to understand grace, by the way, 
is that it is God's power to do in you what you can't do by yourself. That's what grace is. God's power to do in you what you can't do by yourself. That's just a little bonus point for you. There's no blank for that one. And for us to then grow in grace, to grow in God's power to do what we couldn't do in and of ourselves, we still have to take intentional steps. Steps that involve receiving that grace and responding to that grace. It's a partnership process. This is why point three is so important. Remember that just as we were saved by grace, he continues to save us from ourselves by his grace. Our efforts do not mean that we are earning his grace. It's crucial to understand this distinction. You will save yourself so much wasted time in your relationship with Christ if you understand that you didn't earn anything that Jesus did for you and you will not earn anything of his grace in your growth process. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't take intentional steps to be a part of that process. We will require his grace to grow but we will need to take steps as well. It's a partnership process. Okay? <clears throat> Any questions on that so far? Because I just have like a sub point to should I change in the next section. But what I just said is the most important part. And go. Yes. What, what is the process of growth and why is it that we make mistakes along the way? Is, is that a fair synopsis of your question yeah. or is there a different way to say it? Because well, I need to restate it into the microphone and I want to make sure I answer the right question. So, okay. On a, I guess in a personal example, sure. I feel like I've been stagnant in growth. Hmm. Yes. And that's been hard. Yes. Yeah, so what does the process look like in terms of breaking through the obstacles that prevent us from growing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is certainly not a question that I can answer with any amount of extent now. And you probably should know, or at least this is an area of significant passion for me, so much so that I probably anticipate that in the next... Probably sometime in the next six months, I intend to put on a class of how to grow in Christ, which inherently carries within it, how do we respond to the obstacles that stop us from growing? For, this, for the sake of answering your question now, what I'll essentially just say 
is that because of how many parts we are as a human being, we're not just, even though we are a synthesized whole, there's our will, which is different than our thoughts, which is different than the way our body responds, which is different than our social relationships. And so all of these different things have different ways in which we grow in Christ. What you said it was one of your key obstacles that you, by God's grace, have now come to realize was an obstacle, was an incorrect view of God. Sometimes it's merely an informational problem. And you have to confront these false ideas, replace them with the correct ideas, and that then provides the grounds for God's grace to now come in and start working in the process of you growing. But it's not always just getting the right information. Sometimes you can know all of the right information, but that doesn't stop you from doing the dumb things, right? So there can be a variety of obstacles, even like I'm not even diving fully into the psychological aspect of ourselves and how sometimes we have trauma responses to things. Sometimes we're, are, uh, the way in which we think about life is completely distorted because of the way that we grew up. Um, there's all sorts of different aspects that are unique to each individual. So the process is ultimately exploring, hopefully within the church, because you will generally, generally speaking, be able to find people that have walked that path before you within the church, be able to address the specific obstacles that you are having, and then get some guidance in terms of what the process looks like for growing. That's all I'll say in terms of right now, because obviously the process can be very specific to an individual and be a lot more in depth. Because my personal view is that we're going to be growing for the rest of for the rest of rest. Not like for the rest of until we die and then we stop growing. Like I, I can actually I believe that four hundred and sixty-three years from now I will still be growing. That 1,700 years from now, I will still be growing. And fortunately, by God's grace, 1,700 years from now, I will be way better than I am right now, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but the growth process will not happen as fast as you want it to, which is getting ahead. I actually will, I think, mention this in a moment. But that's all I can do for you now. That's okay. But we'll talk more about that. Good question. Any other questions? Okay. So... Um, Two last things on change. Number one, uh, here's a question that often gets thrown away. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Or Christianity is not a bunch of rules, it's a relationship. This is the top of your page three. Here's the thing. Just a couple of quick points on this. Number one, uh, a little introductory idea. Jesus restored you to God so that you could daily live with him and that he could love you. Sometimes, though, people get confused and think that being a Christian means following a certain set of rules or behaviors. Here's a couple of uh, just really quick points on that idea, because I'm wanting to drive home for you that that is a wrong idea, that it's not about following a bunch of rules. Uh, first point here, some of Jesus' harshest words were to religious people who were obsessed about the rules, obsessed about the rules. Jesus had all kinds of conversations with people that were obsessed about the rules. Like I just gave you one example here, but you could find many more from Matthew 23 verses 23 through 28. 
Jesus uses these analogies there that the inside is far more important than the outside, that the, these people that he was talking about, like one time he describes them as like beautiful gravesides, where have you ever been to like a, just a really nice looking cemetery before? Like it looks really nice, but there's a bunch of dead stuff inside, right? Or Jesus uses the example of a cup, like who wants to use the mug that looks really shiny on the outside, but on the inside, it's filled with mold and nasty stuff. Jesus is saying, look, the rules are like what you're doing to make sure that the outside looks good. That's not what my intention is. It's not about the rules. Instead, the way forward, this is the next point on your sheet here. The way forward is praying David's prayer in Psalm 139. I love I love David's prayer here. I gave you the reference. I would encourage you uh, to go home and use this possibly in, in some of your time with God this week. David prays, search me, O God. Know my heart and lead me in the everlasting way. God, uh, and you can make whatever description of that passage that you want there. I just gave you space. But David's prayer is really just, it's quite simple. It's not God, please help me follow the rules. It's God, search my heart. Know who I am and lead me in the everlasting way. Lead me in your way. So we've already made reference to this, but to just drive this idea home, the last point of this subsection here, we can worry less about how we look to others by following the rules and more about our connection with God. Two quick passages. I'll start with the second one first. I should have listed it first, but in reverse here, if you look at that 1 Samuel 16, 7, that's a conversation in which a prophet is talking with God and he says that God looks at the heart. God does not look at outward appearance just like man looks at outward appearance. God looks at the heart. God knows what's going on inside of you. He knows what your intentions are. He knows what it is that you want to do, even if you are making mistakes in the process of doing it. God looks at the heart, which is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, that we recognize Christ in us, not our appearance. Paul says we no longer regard any man to the flesh. We no longer regard any man in the flesh. We don't look... Christ looks at what's going on within us and not our appearance. God doesn't care what your hairstyle is. He doesn't care what you wear to church. He doesn't care what car you drive, etc., etc., etc. I think we all know these things, but the fact is I've talked to so many people through the years that get so tripped up by feeling like because they follow Christ, they're supposed to... There's supposed to be some list of rules that they follow. And sometimes they feel so much more comfortable when there is a list of rules because they're just like, well, now I know if I'm doing it right because there's a list of rules. And unfortunately, for you that like are really the rule followers, that's not how it works. And I'll tell you, it's actually better that it doesn't work that way because that, me that allows you to fulfill your individual purpose. You don't have to be like me. You don't have to, you don't have to be like him. That's a great thing. You don't have to follow a specific list of rules. Instead, you give your heart to God, just like David. Search me and know my heart and lead me in your way. All right, one final note on change. It's like the last thing that I wanted to say about change. And we're doing good on time, so don't feel bad 
about asking questions. A little paragraph to make this final note. Depending on how long you have lived before joining with Christ, before giving your life to Christ, many of us had many years forming our character. That's an important word that I'll define in a second. Defining our character to deal with life in unhealthy ways. Additionally, we, many have experienced trauma that affects the way that they interact with the world. While the Holy Spirit will teach us new paths, we need to beware of our old self springing up. Let me, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get through these notes and then I'm going to unpack it just a little bit here. First, we will be prone, the Bible tells us we will be prone to head back to our old ways. We will be prone to head back to our old ways. In the way that God grows us, generally speaking, he does not, there are people that I have met that just, for whatever reason, because of their specific mission and God's specific intention with that individual, he just immediately changes them. And they like, they give their life to Christ and they're a completely different person. That does happen, but it's not the norm. It's not. So don't expect that God is going to just change you as fast as you want to be changed. Generally speaking, talk to a lot of people over a few decades now and generally speaking most people grow a whole lot slower than they want to which is the second blank here the process of growth will in most cases not be quick the process of growth in most cases will not be quick you won't grow as fast as you want to now the beautiful part is that's not a requirement. Remember that change in Christ, the process of sanctification, is a partnership process. That you don't have to try to accelerate it to go faster because you have some responsibility. God is also at work in you and is determining the pace at which this growth process is going to occur. You do have effect on it, but it will generally be slower than what you want it to be. To go back to this idea of character, we've made reference to this a couple of different times as we've talked about change, but your character, are you familiar with this word, character? Not just like character in a play, but like, like it builds character. My first exposure to it was in Calvin and Hobbes cartoons, like Calvin was always doing something, like his dad was always making him do something he didn't want to do, shovel the driveway, move the wood, clean, rake the leaves. And his dad was always saying that it builds character, right? And so my original exposure to the idea of character was one very negative because I was reading Calvin and Hobbes and that character meant that I had to do chores that I didn't want to do. That was essentially my take on character. But what Calvin's dad was trying to do was essentially recognizing the, the reality that if you have a tendency to walk in one direction, your next step will be in that same direction. That's all that character is. If you keep walking in one direction, generally speaking, you will develop a character that causes your next step to be in that direction. And this is why it's important that like sometimes when people gave their life to Christ, let's say if for an oversimplification, Jesus is that way, but they spent three, four, five decades walking this way. When Jesus grabs a hold of them up to however he sees fit, 
They've, they're farther back than they, than they started. And now, through God's grace, through the power of the Spirit, they're headed in a Jesus word direction. And Jesus doesn't care that they're starting from back here. He doesn't. He just cares that we're walking toward him. That's good enough for him. And he will allow us to take those steps at whatever pace he sees fit as we continue to take those steps. But our formation of character will be a process. And it will take probably a longer period of time than you want it to take. That's okay. Relax in it. If he wanted it to go faster for you, he would make it go faster. That's just as simple as it is. You wanting to grow faster is not something that leverages God to make you grow faster. It's important that you understand that idea. Uh, just to list off these passages or describe them really quickly, in Romans chapter 7, 15 through 25, there, there's kind of a disagreement about what this passage means, whether it's describing a Christian or a non-Christian um, or a combination of both. But what it really essentially lists out is that in our own power, we have a tendency to keep doing the things that we don't want to do, and we have a really hard time doing the things that we wish that we could be doing. And it's describing us in our own power. That's the beauty of the Holy Spirit coming to live within us, is that we start being given the power to do the things that we want to do and to avoid doing the things that we don't want to do. Progressively, that occurs. And then it's important that you understand 2 Peter 3, 9. We talked about this passage briefly last week, but it is important to recognize that God is patient with you. God is patient with you. God doesn't need you to grow faster than he will allow you to grow. I know that sometimes it feels like we're supposed to grow faster. I wish that I could grow faster. I personally, I'm at a point in my life where I really hate it when I sin. I don't enjoy sinning, but I still do. And I don't like that about myself. And I wish that that would go away. But ultimately, God is patient with me working through the process. And if he needed me to have avoided sinning in that moment... He could have given me the power. He could have snapped his finger enough to be able to do that. But there's still a process that he sees value in me going through. So we will be prone to head back to our old ways. The process of growth will not be, will not be quick, but God will be patient with us in that process. That, in a nutshell, is the basics of sanctification, the basics of how we grow or the process of growth in Christ, a couple of the pitfalls that you want to watch out for. Any questions about that? Brad, would I be away my growth of Christ? He has patience with me and he's guided me to, to him. That's, that's, that's my thing. I like to say I'm in a rush to get there, but I know that it's not my time. But he does have the patience and he will guide me to where he wants me to be. Absolutely. We can trust that God's plan to guide you is better than your plan to guide you. And that's what I, I find that really encouraging because I'm really good at making plans that don't work real well. So I find a lot of solace in the reality that God is guiding me toward him in the way that he sees fit and it will be more effective. And he has that patience with you. He does. Yes. Yeah. And he has the patience for it. Yeah, definitely. 
Any other questions, comments, concerns, problems? Okay. Then we're going to shift gears. Because in the process of change, or within the process of change, within the process of growing up in Christ, it's important at the outset that you be aware that you're going to have some difficulty. Now, the, the term that is associated with this a lot of the times is the term spiritual warfare. Now, I don't know what it is that you think of when you think of spiritual warfare. We might have a, ten a tendency sometimes to think of this as way different than it actually is. But what I want to do is unpack for you what spiritual warfare is and some important things for you to know at the outset of your relationship with Christ. Okay? The way that I'm, I'm referring to this is with a much less uh, enticing title, but plan to be tested. Plan for the reality that you're going to face difficulty. Plan to be tested. A uh, paragraph here to just start the idea. It's important to know that choosing to follow Jesus makes things better, but doesn't necessarily mean things will be easier. Drive that point home into your brain. Following Jesus is definitely better, but it doesn't mean that it's easier. For a while, things might even feel harder for your life. The Bible teaches us a lot about facing difficulties, okay? Here's this next, uh, next paragraph here. The difficulties most of the time come from three different angles. They are commonly known as the world, the flesh, and the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now I'll finish the paragraph here and then kind of explain to you what it is that I'm, that we're going to talk about. The first two, the world and the flesh, they are important, but they're a little easier to initially understand. We're just going to talk about them real quickly. They're not even on your sheet. We are instead going to talk about the devil. The devil, however, has a lot of wrong information going on around about him. And so with the brief time that we have left, we're going to talk about the devil. Okay. What I'm trying to drive home here is that the world in general, it, you all are high functioning human beings. I can tell that because you all have clothing on. You've been quiet for an extended period of time because you are polite people instead of just screaming and throwing things at one another. You know how to live in society. Anybody that is that level of functioning, you know that the world doesn't seem to work the way that it's supposed to, that there's something wrong out there. And you may not know exactly what it is or why it is, but you don't need to be a genius to know that the world is somehow not functioning the way that it's supposed to. And there's a whole theological reason for that that's a whole other opportunity for us to talk in the future. But because it's not functioning correctly, it often sets us up for some type of failure with it. Okay, That's just the simple idea of the world. The world provides an opportunity for you to fail. Because the world's out there failing, we're herd animals. I don't like that term, but it's another way of understanding the concept of us. We're socially influenced. That's a fancy way of saying we're herd animals. So when the world's kind of going into chaos and wreckage, sometimes we get sucked into it. That's easy. Okay? It's easy to understand that. The world. The flesh. 
The flesh is just the fact, and you probably, you need to be a little bit higher order than like just your basic person, but most everybody can understand the reality that sometimes, for some unknown reason, you want stuff that's bad. That's the flesh. That's the simplest way to understand the flesh. And a lot of that comes because of our nature in Christ, our natural sin nature. Again, there's theological reasons for this as well that we're not going to dive into. But the simple idea is that the world's in chaos, and sometimes it sucks us into that. Our flesh still needs to grow. And when I say flesh, I don't mean our body. Again, your body's not any more evil than any other part of you. Flesh is just the idea that Scripture uses to describe the part of you that wants stuff that's bad. Those are easier to understand. The third enemy, though, that will end up being a test for you is the fact that there is a spiritual world at play that you and I can't see directly but we experience the effects of it. This is the devil and his kingdom. There's tons to say about this, but like I said, there's a lot of wrong information going around. So instead of pretending like I'm going to be able to tell you everything about the spiritual world and everything that you need to know about the devil, here are just some basics that I think are important for somebody early on in their relationship with Christ. First, generally... His, the devil, his attacks, because he attacks even us, his attacks are subtle, subtle. And you remember how to spell the word subtle, that it has a silent B in it, a subtle B inside the subtle. His attacks are subtle, but they are persistent. His attacks are subtle, but they are persistent. Last little blank that I gave you there because it helps me. They're not like the movies. If you've seen any movie or any cartoon or any television show or any type of visual media that, that tries to depict the devil, typically it's one of two things. It's either trying to do these like big exorcist movie type things or it's like the angel and devil on the shoulder type things, right? The exorcist movie thing, though Satan, the devil, is certainly capable of that type of stuff, it's actually much more like the angel and tempter on the corner or on the, on the shoulders idea, that the attacks are typically much more subtle, but they're persistent and they're regular, okay? It's not like the big fancy movies. Here's a couple of biblical descriptions in Chapter 5 of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, Peter describes the devil as one who prowls around like a lion. He prowls around like a lion. Now, a lion is obviously an immensely powerful animal. But when the lion is hunting, it does so in a very subtle way. He doesn't just like roar immediately and start charging at things. There is normally a stalking process involved. And Peter describes our enemy as one who prowls like a lion looking for opportunities to fail. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 to go back to the book of Ephesians. You'll remember when we talked about spiritual warfare there we realized that our battle is non-physical. 
It's a non-physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. Generally speaking, the temptations of the devil are not going to be for physical things. They're going to be for spiritual things. Our battle is not against, the, that passage reads something to the effect of, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but the principalities and powers of this present darkness, of, this air, of the air. It's a spiritual battle. Now, what are these subtle forms of attack? Let me give you the most common ones that you could get used to here. And I have some passages where you can look up later and see those things. The first one, the most common one, you will lose excitement about Christ. That passage from Revelation is a description of this church that God is talking to the church saying, you're doing everything right. Great job. You're doing everything right, except for the fact that you're not actually doing it because you love me anymore. You're just doing it because you follow the rules. And the enemy would love to get your attention off of God and onto anything else. That's what we talked about last week, that serving Satan is not about bowing down to pentagrams and lighting candles and sacrificing goats. It's purely just spending your life on yourself as opposed to pursuing God out of love for him. And so the first thing he'd like to do is to help you lose excitement about Christ. The second most common way that he will subtly attack you is you will be tempted by your old life. You will be tempted by your old life. He knows, the devil knows that you had a certain character that you developed in another, in the opposite direction of Christ. And so he knows the most effective form of attack is to tempt you to make it look like your previous direction made more sense. That your previous direction was something that actually provided you more happiness or more comfort or ended up with better results. And so he will tempt you with your old life. The third one, here's a, very, here's a very common one that people are not aware of, but it's oh so important that somebody tell you this, especially at the beginning. Essentially, the, the, it's not what the blank is, but you can write before this little point the word social, social. Because a lot of people find, especially those that are adults when they give their life to Christ, that as the Holy Spirit starts to change you, you will not fit in with your old circles. You will not fit in with your old circles. But that doesn't mean that you're going to find new ones real fast. And so what the, what the devil will do with this, what the enemy wants to do with this is to isolate you, to make you feel lonely. You'll start to get alienated from your friends if he can't tempt you to fail with your previous friends, if that was relationships that you had. And instead, you'll find yourself going, well, I don't, I don't know who to hang out with. And that's why the church is so crucial. And we'll talk more about the church in the future. But in all reality, depending upon what type of life you were living beforehand, sometimes the church is really weird. Sometimes the church is not as fun as your old friends. Or sometimes it's like they're... Because Jesus is saving people from all kinds of walks of life and all kinds of ethnicities and doesn't really, doesn't really align the way that maybe your special interest group was aligned. 
And so we can end up getting isolated, and then it's easy for him to attack us those other ways, to take our excitement about Christ or to be tempted with our old life. Okay? Point three. Here's where, uh, here's another important thing to recognize in response to all the stuff that I said. The devil does not need to be feared by the Christian. You do not need to be afraid of the devil. Really quickly, let me just fill out, because it looks like the service got out early, so I'm trying to, I, I don't get that extra 10 minutes that I was hoping for, but we're going we're gonna to take it anyway. If you have to get going, feel free. Um, but uh, John 16, 33, uh, that Jesus' power can overcome anything. If you are in Christ, then you have Jesus' power available to you. Jesus' power can overcome anything. 1 John 4, 1 through 4, John writes that Jesus, who is in you by the power of his spirit, is greater than all the world's power, greater than all power that you could face. Matthew 28, when Jesus says the words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, What Jesus is telling us in that Matthew 28 passage is that he is actually still more powerful than the devil. He is more powerful than the devil. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, we we learn, and I know I'm going really fast, I apologize. Some of you are really fast writers, and I admire you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, we learn there that Jesus is Lord over the spiritual realm. Jesus is Lord over the spiritual realm, which is where the devil operates. And it should be around about this time where you start to recognize like, well, wait a minute, if Jesus is in charge, if Jesus is more powerful, if Jesus is over the spiritual realm, then why doesn't he just squash the devil? And the reality is so many of the things in scripture show us that there's like a something that has already happened component and something that will happen in the future component. And scripture tells us that he has already defeated Satan, but one day will bring him to a point of final defeat. So that is the destiny. And the devil knows that, which is why he does not need to be feared. But point four, looks like they're redoing their jumping pogo time up there. I apologize for that. Um, Though the devil does not need to be feared, he does need to be resisted. There's so much about this that I could go off on to try to explain it all, but let me just give you this very simple concept. God, through his grace, is trying to give you power to do stuff that you couldn't do otherwise without him. That's what grace was, right? His power to do in you what you couldn't do for yourself. That's why he is still using you, letting you go through the process of resisting the devil instead of him just squashing him in your own life. What does it look like to resist? Okay, so this is a breakdown of James chapter 4, 7 through 8. If, you're, if you wanted to get a clear passage on what it looks like to resist the devil, what I'm telling you, hey, you don't have to fear him, but you have to resist him, 
Here's what it looks like. James chapter 4, 7 through 8. Let me just break it down for you point by point here. Actually, I haven't read any text of Scripture. Let me read it, and then I will bring it, because it's only two verses. Then I'll break it down for you. And it also gives us a time to <laughs> disco dance or whatever it is. 4, 7 through 8, okay? This is James 4, 7 through 8. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Okay? Verse 10 then kind of summarizes it. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's break down James 4, 7 through 8 real quick. The resistance of the devil looks like point one. Submit to God. Submit to God. Allow God to be in charge of your life. That one should be pretty straightforward to understand, but it's still a process each day. God, I give you control over my life. I give you control over this situation. Submit to God. Point two, draw near to God. It's not enough just to submit to God, to recognize that God is bigger than you, more powerful than you, somebody that should be worshipped. You need to actually go through the process of worshipping him. You need to actually draw near to him. What does it look like to draw near to God? I've given you some really helpful, practical things there. Pursue him through prayer. Learn how to use scripture to understand his word. Use the spiritual disciplines, which we'll talk more about next week, but they're essentially practices that we use to try to grow and reshape a new character by the grace of God. Draw near to God. That's point two. Point three, cleanse your hands of sin is how James writes in chapter four. Cleanse your hands of sin. Wash up. Cleanse your hands of sin. What does that, what's that mean practically? Remove your old sinful habits. Because remember, the devil wants to use your old sinful ways to try to trap you up. So essentially, if you know, let's just use like a real practical example, okay? Scripture does not tell us anywhere that drinking alcohol is wrong. Doesn't tell us that, okay? Drinking alcohol is not told to us by Scripture that it's wrong. However, I've talked to many people throughout my ministry who, for them, drinking alcohol associates them with the people with whom they drank alcohol, and that ended up leading them in a direction that was away from God, not toward God. So a simple thing for them in terms of cleansing their hands is maybe I'm going to take a break from alcohol for a while, okay? It's just as simple as that. It's not because alcohol is the problem. It's because that was the temptation process. And that could be all kinds of things. Music that we listen to, places where we go, friends that we hang out with, things that we watch on TV, things we listen to, things, the, the conversations that we allow ourselves to have. There are simple steps that we can take that progressively give the devil less and less ability to try to tempt us. And then last, point four, purify your hearts and minds. Purify your hearts and minds, okay? There is an analogy that 
I knew we wouldn't have enough time, so I didn't actually bring the physical thing, but I want you to try to imagine it. It's really just as simple as this. If I had a glass of water, okay, just a normal glass of water, and I put five drops of red dye into that water, what color would that glass of water be? It'd be red, right? Not a trick question. It'd be, it'd be red. If I take a pitcher of clear water and start dumping it into that red water, initially, it's still going to look red, but then progressively, it's going to start turning pink and then paler and paler pink. And if I just keep dumping more clear water into it, eventually, what will be left in that water, not counting what's on the floor, will be a glass of clear water, right? This is what purifying your hearts and minds is. Purifying your hearts and minds is filling your mind with truth through the exposure to Scripture. This is why Scripture is so important. Fill your mind with, with truth through exposure to Scripture. That's that blank there underneath the word through for number four, exposure to Scripture. This is why Scripture is so valuable. We know it's true. We know that there's no lies in there. So we can expose our minds regularly to Scripture. And it's not just you alone with your Bible and sharing your experiences. That's the second blank there. So fill your mind with truth through exposure to Scripture and sharing your experiences with more mature Christians so that they can help you identify any lies that you might be basing your thinking and actions on. We need one another. You were not meant to live this Christian life by yourself. Jesus specifically saved you into a part of his body. That's what Caleb was talking about this morning. That the church is there for us to be able to be beneficial to one another. And it, as we talk to one another about the process of what it is that we're learning, trying to understand truth, the church can be beneficial to that idea. Last, and I just threw this one in here as an extra bonus point on top of James chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 6, 13 through 18, where we talked about is another passage that describes spiritual warfare. Many of the ideas above are repeated, but we are encouraged to be a people of prayer. We are encouraged to be a people of prayer, constantly speaking to and listening to God. That generally speaking, as we fill our mind with truth, as we're interacting with those within the body of Christ, and as we develop a life that is reflective of being a people of prayer, there's not, a, there's not much space for the enemy to be able to attack us. And that's what resistance ends up looking like. Okay? So any questions about that? I guess just a thought. A thought. Um, Go ahead with your thought. Season where I 
wasn't going to church, and those areas in my life were less obvious. And mm-hmm. I take other people saying, like, hey, I think that's kind of like an issue for you. Or even just saying, like, I noticed this in your life because I couldn't see it myself. Yeah, yeah. Just to synthesize there, I want to drive home again that I think a lot of the times people feel like they need to follow Christ by going home, spending all their time alone in prayer and reading Bibles. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I'm not a monk. Like I don't live by myself in some little shack attached to a building. I actually maintain a couple days a week, a normal job in the world because we are, we're meant to be in social environments and God will use me more for the kingdom and will press, impress more of the kingdom upon me if I can be within the church and be a part of the dynamic relationships of the church and they help identify things. Yeah, thanks for that. Any other last questions or statements? Well then, may God bless you as you go out this week. God, may we grow in you. Amen. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this part of the New Believers class. Again, if you have any questions about this material or anything Jesus related, Pastor Brad would love to talk with you. Email him at bbeers at sbctrucky.com. Hopefully, we'll see you at our next gathering. Until then, keep seeking after Jesus.